Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer and director Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. Today's episode is our last one for 2022. So, of course, we're talking all about holidays. We're excited to have historian Von Joy on to talk about the impact of Christmas movies, how the government influenced the cultural sector in the nuclear age, and how those ramifications are still having ripple effects today. We'll also discuss how pop culture changes social attitudes and conveys the politics of the moment as seen through the lens of what will, in quotes, say, innocuous media, like what you consume around the holidays. Lastly, we'll dive into how we'd like to see more representation on screen in terms of holiday films, including different religions, different secular traditions, and different communities at the center of the story. Thank you so much, Fawn, for joining us here today on Brains. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited. My name is Vaughn. I am an American studying in the UK. I have had a very weird journey to where I am. Um, I started as a colonial kind of re- American Revolution historian and also classical languages, Latin and Greek. And then I went to grad school for classics and studied ancient demonology. And then I went to a different grad school and studied comic books. And now I study Christmas films. I love it. What a journey. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been kind of all over the shop, but it's been wonderful. I, I love it. And through all of it, there's been a kind of pop culture element to it that I didn't really realize until about my third year of my PhD. And I was like, oh, there's a link here. (laughs) Like, I've always studied kind of how pop culture of any era links through and kind of changes social attitudes and really conveys the politics of the the moment. So that's been kind of the through line of of everything. How did you get to Christmas films? And when did you first become interested in analyzing them as part of your research? I wasn't initially. I wanted to study amusement parks and kind of escapism in the Cold War and the nuclear threat and why in that period so many people turned to going to actual physical locations for escapism. And that's why you get like Disneyland come up in 55 and all of the kind of classic amusement parks that are still around today. Not Coney Island, that's more turn of the century earlier for different political and social reasons of escapism. But I really wanted to look at kind of the nuclear age and that form of escapism. But my supervisor had just done a thesis with me on comic books, which is very much not his expertise. And he is not an expert in amusement parks either. And he was like, can we pick something that I know? And I was like, (laughs) fine, I guess. So we had a very long meeting about what kind of films I would be interested in that would still kind of get to the heart of that escapism in the nuclear age. And he was really pushing for horror films, but I do not do horror at all. (laughs) I absolutely hate being scared. So I was like, (laughs) what if we do the exact opposite of a horror film, which is Christmas? 
because everybody feels good at Christmas. It's always just a fun time and it always has a happy <laughs> ending. It's just jolly. And he begged me not to because he didn't want to read about Christmas for four years. He told me to like go away and think about it and, and see if I could write up a proposal for it. And the more I started digging, the more I was like, oh, wow, there's actually so much here that has never been written about before. Like horror films have a whole subsection of film history. There are so many horror scholars, but there are so few Christmas film books at all, let alone people whose careers are dedicated to kind of studying this. So it was a very kind of niche thing. And then the more I kind of started digging in, I realized that people think Christmas films are just that idea that I had that like, oh, it's just happy. It's jolly. It's why not? But actually, we really put so much into Christmas films and messages into them and frame them as this is an ideal American celebrating an ideal American Christmas. And that idea is really compelling for a historian to say, well, what makes it an ideal American Christmas? Or how is this person an archetypal American? And what kind of impact does that thought have when you watch the same films every year, just kind of innocently in the background while you're doing other Christmassy things? You're you're kind of taking in those messages, even if you're not paying attention to them. So that really solidified that there was actually something there for me to study. But m the main answer is that I just love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. uh, I'm glad that you came onto this podcast because I... I'm also a lover of Christmas movies, and I November first. That's when I start, mm. and I watch Christmas until the end of the Christmas season, and it's great. But um, with with your research, what is the main takeaway so far that you have? It's kind of twofold. One is just that we do not think about kind of innocuous media or non political media enough. We don't challenge it. We don't question what we are consuming. That's been the overall kind of thing. Um, and then the other side of it, the kind of more serious part of my dissertation and the actual history part of it is about how the government influenced Hollywood at a very specific time in 1947 and 1948. And the ramifications that the government kind of oversight had on the cultural sector through the rest of the 1950s and into 1961. And the revelation from that has been that we are still having impacts from government oversight from the mid-century that we're not really aware of as a, a public who are consuming the products from Hollywood, we need to be way more aware of how the government influenced a cultural sector and how those ramifications are still kind of having ripple effects today. When I saw that that's part of your research, I was so fascinated. And I, I wondered, like, do you have any examples that you could share with us of things that were influenced and then what its impact was? Yeah. So... The biggest one would be HUAC. Um, so the House Committee on Un-American Activities was a House committee that was investigating un-American activities. <laughs> um, and in 1947, they came into Hollywood and decided to start labeling people as communist. This was in line with McCarthyism at the time with Senator Joseph McCarthy and um, finger pointing, saying that all of these communists in the government, in the, the public spaces, they're conspiring against Americans. And it was baseless fear mongering. There, there were very, very few cases of actual communists either in Hollywood. Actually, HUAC found zero evidence of communists in Hollywood. It was a 
total fear mongering campaign. So HUAC went into Hollywood 75 years ago on October 27th, 1947, and held a trial for 10 people in Hollywood who refused to say whether they were or were not communists or had affiliations with the Communist Party of America. Um, And they were known as the Hollywood 10. They were directors and screenwriters and producers in Hollywood from all of the major studios. And all 10 of them were held in contempt of Congress. And in 1950, they all went to jail for a year or two, depending. The investigations of HUAC into Hollywood to try and find these communists had real immediate ramifications for Hollywood because, again, this trial was on October 27th. And on November 24th, I want to say, 50 executives from Hollywood met at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and established the blacklist as their response to this. So anyone who was suspected of ties with communism or the Communist Party were then blacklisted from Hollywood and couldn't work, couldn't create films, couldn't do anything within the cultural space. Wow. Those are very real threats that really challenged people's livelihoods. Ten people were already arrested on charges against Congress. So those those federal kind of threats and then also the threats of their bosses and the studio heads and the, the Hollywood executives, it put a real challenge to filmmakers to still create the art that they wanted to make within these kind of borders and often kind of vague guidelines of what they could and could not put into films to keep it from being communist subversion. And it's vague because how can you tell a filmmaker this is the definitive interpretation of your work? You can't do that with art. It's it's subjective and yeah. it relies on the viewer to create a meaning for themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was a very tricky time. And in that period, there was a film analyst named Dorothy Jones. She is widely understudied. (laughs) She's like one of my personal heroes now that I've I've found her through my research. And she wrote a report in 1954 analyzing the extent to which HUAC was right or wrong. And she concluded that HUAC found absolutely no communist subversion. But actually what had happened was HUAC's threats caused a major shift in the culture And this is where my study comes in with this case study on Christmas films through the whole period and how they changed. But her conclusions were that we had a dramatic decline in films that showed social problems and psychological problems, cinema that dealt with kind of more serious topics, which is why a lot of films from the 50s, not all of them, but a lot of them are musicals or romances or comedies that are kind of a single narrative plot without very huge stakes. Um, And that's doubly true for Christmas films in that period. How did the Christmas movie shift over the span of the Cold War era? So kind of in line with that. In 1946, we have It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, I would be absolutely shocked if you haven't seen it at least once and you're an American. It is a kind of American Dickensian tale, right? It's Mm -hmm. like... A Christmas Carol, but flipped to Bob Cratchit's character from George Bailey's perspective. And then in 1947, you get a couple other kind of Dickensian films that are dealing with homelessness or a city not providing for its people, 
like uh, the bishop's wife from 47. You get Miracle on 34th Street dealing with the the actual kind of, is Santa an insane person for thinking he is Santa Claus? Mm, right, yeah. And then after Hewitt comes in in 47 and all of these things kind of start shifting and changing, it really follows on with what Dorothy Jones analyzes in the wider uh, Hollywood context that these films all shift to simpler plots and musicals and comedies. So through the 50s, you get films like um, Holiday Affair from 1949, which is just about a love triangle. Um, Very limited stakes in that. (laughs) There's Susan Slept Here in 1954, which is about... That film's actually absurd. That is a wild film. Um, But (laughs) it's it's about Debbie Reynolds as a 17-year-old who marries Dick Powell, who is 50 years old, but playing a 35-year-old in the film. Oh, dear. Of course. I think Debbie Reynolds was probably 21. Wow. Okay. She was too young (laughs) for this. But she marries him to avoid going to jail for spitting on a cop, actually, and calling him a communist. Um, among some other. Oh, kind of there, I mean, that's a message that they're trying go. to get out there. Come on. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and that, that film is just wild. It's, but it's a comedy and it's a romance and it's very simplistic actually in its plot points. Although it does have, as I say, those messages, those political messages kind of running throughout like Debbie Reynolds spitting on a cop. You get in 1954 also White Christmas which is one of the most classic kind of American Christmas films. That's my favorite, along with It's a Wonderful Life. But that's just about two two couples coming together and falling in love for Christmas, and then it starts snowing and it's all magical. But again, there are really low stakes there. And then a bit further along, you see Disney come in, mm, yeah. and he was kind of biding his time to see if Christmas was actually... A profitable venture, and he proved that it absolutely was <laughs> yeah. in '61 with Babes in Toyland, which was just a marketing success. It digging into how he made Babes in Toyland wild because the the storyline is almost non-existent. I mean, it is it is a children's film, so it's extremely simplistic, but it's also just a weird little film that could kind of just wash over you, and that really set the tone for how Christmas would be dealt with for the next two decades of the Cold War, which is that it was almost entirely for children. Before 61, there were no Christmas films for children at all. So Disney completely changes that that whole framework and says, actually, children are a demographic in themselves. And that's partly because of the baby boom in that period and capitalizing on the demographic shift and also Disney becoming more and more financially independent and becoming a more important studio, not quite a major yet, but more important. So yeah, that's my my period that I study is 46 to 61. But beyond that, in the later 60s and 70s, you don't get anything from Hollywood on Christmas. You only get it from television companies who are producing things like the Rankin-Bass productions, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, that animation. And it's all geared towards children with, again, relatively low stakes. And then we don't see another serious Christmas film until the 80s. And the first one from Hollywood is Gremlins. And then (laughs) Die Hard. Die Hard's one of my favorite Christmas movies. (laughs) It's the, The 80s Christmas films are really fascinating because... 
Hollywood doesn't know how to deal with Christmas anymore because they hadn't been dealing with Christmas for a very long time. So the only way they know how to do it is to completely shift the genre again. We see this shift from like Dickensian in the 40s to, to romance and musicals and comedies in the 50s, and then pretty much nothing from Hollywood for two decades. And in the 80s, they're like, what about horror and action? Because that's what our technology <laughs> provides for. Yes. And that's what people like. So we'll just like put a veneer of Christmas over other films mm. that are successful right now. Yeah. Um, and they nailed it. They, <laughs> yeah, they really totally. <laughs> and you get you get Scrooged as well in 88, mm. which is completely like a parody horror Christmas film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first Dickensian film since 1947. When does Hallmark come into the... Um, Christmas space. I think Hallmark starts with their Christmas films very lightly in, I want to say 89. It's very late in the eighties. And then in the nineties, they start ramping it up a bit. And through the 21st century, they've completely kind of dominated the, the B list option for Christmas films. Um, Netflix is coming in and giving them a run though. That's also really fascinating because TV and Hollywood have kind of this weird relationship now because before television, you had studios making A-list, B-list and C-list films where A-list had the, they were like the blockbusters. They had lots of funding and the major stars and longer production times and B-lists and C-lists, you could turn around in like four or five days of production. They had stars attached to them, like Ronald Reagan was a B-list star, but everyone knew his name because he made so many of them. He could make 10 in a month if a studio wanted to, and they would just package them up with the big selling blockbusters in a practice called block booking, which was ruled illegal for the major studios in 1948, which is another part of this whole government oversight in that period. But then when, when television started getting bigger and larger and started making their own productions, like in the 60s and 70s, you see this new relationship coming out where studios don't feel like they can make B-lists anymore because television's making B-lists. So there's more demand for Hollywood to make better films. Um, And then by the late 70s, when Star Wars comes out and the blockbuster is born as we know it, um, there's even more expectation on studios. So when a film is bad, it used to just be because it was a low budget film that they were just rolling out to make money. But now we we take every film as though it should be amazing and perfect. Can I go back and ask you a question? So block yeah. booking, I, I, I don't know mm-hmm. about that. What was that and why did they stop studios from doing that? Block booking was one of the practices that were banned with the Paramount Accords in 1948. Block booking, as I said, is when you kind of roll films into one package and sell the license for the blockbuster in a package with other licenses. And it was a way to force money making onto these films that were objectively pretty terrible. Mm. And that practice was seen as monopolistic by the Supreme Court and by the DOJ. So that along with some other things um, like circuit dealing, which is when studios would decide where geographically they would release films um, and withhold it from certain sections and, and whatnot. They had priority over which theaters they could sell a license to, and it wasn't very fair practice at all. And this was really detrimental to independent cinema owners who either couldn't pay for the 
large licensing fee for the whole block booking package or who when they did pay for it because they really wanted the blockbuster if they only had two screens in their cinema then they would have the initial run of the blockbuster but then they would be tied to these b-list films and running kind of empty showings because nobody wanted to see them and it really was a massive financial detriment to independent cinema owners and favored the cinemas that were owned by major studios who could afford to run a loss on the B-lists for the profits of the, the blockbuster. And with that, not with the blockbooking, but in that time, didn't they also stop studios from owning cinemas, right? Yeah. So that was the kind of primary goal of the Paramount Accords was for the studios to sell their own cinema chains. Because at the time, studios and the studio system was that the studios owned production, distribution, and exhibition of films. So they would make the film, market the film, and show the film to viewers and profit off of all of those sections. So it was very, very much just a monopolistic practice for the major studios and pushed out independent studios or independent producers, independent distributors. So the the Paramount Accords really tried to level the playing field and did for a number of years until the DOJ re- re- repealed it. Yeah, until recently. And we see what's happening now in our industry. You see like how everyone's starting to just merge. Merge together. And yeah. so we're going to have the, we're have these huge monopolies again. And it's driven by, you know, everyone's driven by different things, but sometimes it's driven by, okay, we're just, what's the bottom line? How do we just like fire sale stuff? Which is what's happening with Warner Discovery. Like let's fire sale everything so that we yep. can just make this, number back and then please please the invisible stock market that is made up by just how people feel one day like that's <laughs> literally what the stock market is uh. um it's all ridiculous but yeah we're seeing that have immediate effect just like you were saying you know there was immediate effect of what happened when they you know created the blacklist and made those changes same thing in britain with mary whitehouse she was a conservative activist and basically from what i understand there was a campaign and they basically made all of these changes to the what could be shown on television and what could be shown in cinema. Mm. She was cleaning up TV, but in doing so, they created this huge like censorship that a lot of things fell under for a very long time. Our version of that was called the Hayes Code. Yes, the Hayes Code. Yeah, and the Paramount Accords actually started doing some real damage to the Hayes Code by allowing other studios to make films and have independence and original ideas kind of come in um, more widely. The Hayes Code was in place from the 30s through officially the late 60s, but it really took a lot of damage from 48 onwards because it was this, this highly puritanical idea of what you could and could not show in films. And the Production Code Administration, which is the, the actual kind of department for it in in Hollywood. It's kind of colloquially called the the Hayes Code. But the PCA would review all of the scripts multiple times and have to approve all of the the things that were going in films and you could still put a film out that wasn't approved by the PCA, but your film was stamped with this is not approved by the PCA and that really did have an impact on audiences and what they wanted to see. And that also really helped Disney and Disney's brand in the 1960s because 
we had this kind of degradation of the Hayes Code and people weren't getting a guarantee of what the content of a film would be. So they didn't know if they could take their kids to just any random film. They didn't know if they could take their kids to White Christmas. But knowing Disney was a children's children's brand, they could take their kids to Babes in Toyland. So that's that's another kind of element of Disney in this period kind of working the system and being an evil genius about it. <laughs> um, and then in 1968, we got the the actual rating system come in. When you look back at things like It's a Wonderful Life, you are seeing something that's actually talking about something and about your impact on the world and also the impact of others on you that you don't see really in a lot of the films that follow. It's a Wonderful Life is a really interesting one with the PCA because they had a lot of problems with the character of Violet. Violet is the other alleged kind of love interest for George. She has a massive crush on George, but ultimately he ends up with Mary, the kind of sweet, innocent, motherly type. Um, And Violet's a bit more promiscuous and um, eccentric. And the production code administration files regarding Violet are really harsh and say more about the production code than they do about the film because almost every line of hers they say this indicates that she's a prostitute maybe my next book will just be a deep dive into the production code because mm, yeah the, the things they read out of films are absolutely wild there's a whole section in my dissertation about the fur that violet wears at certain moments in the film and i read it as Frank Capra trying to get around the PCA where she says that she's moving to New York and George wants to give her money and she tries to refuse it. And he says, what are you going to do? Hawk your furs. And I think that's the only instance in it's a wonderful life where it could be seen as her selling herself or selling part of herself, that that could be an illusion to, prostitution and promiscuity and lowering the value of oneself, which I don't believe in. But the entire back and forth with the PCA and Frank Capra is really, really fascinating for trying to hit those those levels of the Hayes Code, but also make this very real social commentary that he does with It's a Wonderful Life. This is so fascinating. From what I understand, It's a Wonderful Life was not a success until the, not really until the copyright ran out Mm. in 74. Yes. And then it's synonymous with Christmas. Mm-hmm. So how did that shift happen? And like, why, why did it become this like holiday classic in this capacity when all the films were so different? It was relatively successful in, in 46. Um, it, it didn't bomb, but it wasn't like number one for the year. I think it was relatively high, though. It was definitely, I think, top 15 for the year in 46. Sorry, Kappa. <laughs> Heather, takes it back. <laughs> it, it wasn't as successful as we would think it is, though, because it is so ubiquitous now. And for a film from 1946 to be as popular as it is in 2022 is really a m- remarkable thing. And it is because of that copyright issue in 74. So Capra had been trying to fight Hollywood on his own, essentially. Um, when he got back from the war, he really didn't like how Hollywood had changed in those those few years. And he and a few other independent directors and producers 
formed their own studio to try and combat the the major studios. And it was called Liberty Films. And they only produced two major films and a couple that weren't successful at all. But It's a Wonderful Life was one of them. And then within a couple years, it just went financially bankrupt. They They couldn't keep up with it because it was such a brutal system in Hollywood for independence. And that's why we have all of the kind of governmental oversight come in and the the Paramount Accords and those things. But Liberty Films had already failed by that point. So no one knew to renew the copyright on It's a Wonderful Life when it lapsed in 1974. And because it entered the public domain, all of the television channels were like, we'll just run this for Christmas because it's vaguely a Christmas film. So we'll just put this on 24-7. And they did. And for many years, it became this institution for Americans to sit down and watch It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas. And I think 1977, there started lawsuits from the Musicians Guild because of the the music copyright in It's a Wonderful Life, that was still owned by the people who made it. So they were suing for licensing for that. And when that lawsuit was settled, I don't remember exactly when, the television channels had to strike a deal for licensing or just pay it. And that's when the estate that owns It's a Wonderful Life outright now decided that NBC would get the contract and they could show it two times a year. So then after it being shown so ubiquitously and it becoming kind of part of a Christmas tradition for many Americans, then they started seeing like, oh, it's only showing at this time now. So now we have to watch it. And it had really amazing ratings for a long time. And I remember sitting down and watching like, it's a wonderful life is on NBC. We have to sit down and watch it as a family. And (laughs) Um, that just really became the tradition. So now, I mean, I don't live in the States anymore, but granted, I do study it now. But in that period before I started studying It's a Wonderful Life, I still made sure to watch it every year at Christmas because this is just part of the tradition. I used to live in the UK and they showed it at the cinema. We went down as a group of us and yeah. watched it in the cinema. I think the first time I saw it actually was when I was visiting Heather in the UK and I went to the cinema with her. Then we, that's the only time I've gone to the cinema was to see It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was the first time, and I, I'm like, how can I? And I don't know why I missed it. It's such a f- beautiful film, and it was, I was, it was so impactful. I was like sobbing, like it was great, great to watch it in a theater like that. Anyway, though it's interesting because there is a joke, and I think this a lot of people say this. I'm like, I don't think I would mind being Mary in the alt universe. Like she's just a librarian and gets to like read all the books she wants and like just be chill. I'm like, hey, Mary, I like that version of you. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Capra got a lot of hate mail about that, actually. I was I was in the Capra archives earlier this year and going through the, the fan mail that he had saved. And there were several letters about how he maligned librarians and made them look homely and that they have this sad life that they need to be rescued from. And librarians were really fighting back against this portrayal. But uh, one, I think it's absurd to say that Donna Reed could ever look homely. She's <laughs> such a stunning woman. <laughs> she she looks great with her hair tied back in that scene also. Okay, so you've mentioned some of your, It's a Wonderful Life is your favorite Christmas movie, one of them. Can you list, Can you name some other ones that are your favorites? Yeah, I really love White Christmas. That was another kind of staple 
of my childhood at first snowfall every year, whenever it was, even if it was October, I would watch White Christmas. I love Scrooged. Scrooged is definitely one of my favorites. It's such a good film. (laughs) Obviously, Muppets Christmas Carol, which is the best adaptation of A Christmas Carol, not just because it's Muppets, but actually it's, it's almost word for word, the Dickens story, while still being its own thing. It's an excellent adaptation. What else do I love? I really love, have you seen the film Klaus? Yeah. From 2019? Yeah. On Netflix? That's one of the best just films I think I've ever seen. It's amazing. I think everybody should watch this film. It's so good. It's also a passion project of Sergio Pablos who created it. He had been working on it for 15 years and it's all completely hand-drawn. It's absolutely stunning. It also has this beautiful message of like the children are the future and they will bring about change whether the older generations want them to or not. The choice is the children's to stop this kind of generational cycle of just hatred for one another. Such a good movie. It's so good. And it's also the one of the only original Christmas films to take an established myth being the idea or concept of Santa Claus and write a completely original mythology for it and have it actually work. Because it feels like it would be this kind of really old story about Santa Claus, but it's not. It's it's a completely original idea from Sergio Pablos. Oh, that's so cool. Amazing. I didn't know that backstory. That's amazing. We've talked about your favorite films. But I think one of the questions that I think is really important to think about is like, are these films still having a big cultural impact on us? Are they affecting us in a way that, you know, you saw that you've been seeing in your research in the past? Is it still doing that today? That's a great question. And I think it's difficult to answer because the messages are so subliminal. The impacts they have do come down to the audience and audiences change over time. Audiences have different Mm -hmm. interactions with films. I mean, in 1946, if you didn't see It's a Wonderful Life in theaters, then you were not going to see it again unless a cinema decided to relicense the film. But Liberty Films had closed, so they couldn't. So the next time people saw It's a Wonderful Life was most likely nearly 30 years later in the 1970s. Our interaction with films is completely different now. We can put them on passively in the background while we're making Christmas cookies or something and just kind of look up whenever you want or recite the lines as you're doing it just from rote memorization, which is something that I do. But (laughs) I do think that as a blanket statement, all films will leave you with a message in the back of your mind, whether you Mm -hmm. acknowledge it or not. You will always come away from a film with some sort of idea about what you interpreted happening in the film, which is a very vague concept, but... (laughs) But it's true. We believe that to be true of all film. And it was really interesting when you said this idea of like, passive consumption and films that seem innocuous, like they actually still have impact and in some cases, probably more so because you don't even notice. Exactly. You're not dismissing it because you're not like, oh, this is just a message. Meh. But you're like, oh, yeah, Christmas. I'm like, you, I think we're seeing some change finally in like Hallmark. We're like yes. seeing, you know, non-white couples yeah. at the center of Christmas stories. We're actually seeing things about other cultures. So they're trying to find things like, can we do a a movie about Hanukkah? Mm -hmm. Can we do a movie about Kwanzaa? Can we do a movie about other holidays? They have a whole department that just does holidays. But I think that's interesting as they're trying to, really, they're trying to capitalize on audiences that they're missing out on. But it's still, to me, there's a shift there. 
in some capacity where they're like, we can't ignore these other audiences anymore. Yeah. And probably mostly monetarily, but at least that there is a shift. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that. That's another kind of issue of something that I try to tackle with my work is that there are so many Christmas films and they are so kind of integrally American. Um, So many Americans do know these touchstones of classic Christmas films, whether they are Christian or not. I'm not religious and I wasn't raised with religion at all. So for all of these Christmas films to be such an an important part of my childhood and my traditions around the holiday, that's a really fascinating kind of commentary on American culture and our alleged secularism. And I would absolutely say that all of these classic Christmas films are secular. There are angels in some of them, but they're not really preaching any sort of religious ideas or trying to convert the audience. Any religion in the films is kind of just a backdrop and a centralizing aspect of this is Christmas, so we're out of church, but that's not really part of it. Even The Bishop's Wife, which is about a a bishop, (laughs) is not really religious in any serious ways that impact the plot or messaging of the film. That's social commentary, that this Christian religion gets to be part of a secular idea of what Americanism is, but we don't have any Hanukkah films on the level of It's a Wonderful Life or White Christmas yeah. or Scrooged even. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another really fascinating kind of part. So when we talk about impacts on audiences, one aspect would definitely be representation and who is actually being shown in these films and what impact does that have on the people who align with that identity and what impact does it have with the people who absolutely do not align with that identity. The fact that our holidays, everything, everything that we do, like the time we have off, it's all surrounding something that's based on what's considered a Christian holiday. Our whole system revolves around that. And then these films revolve around that and the things that we see and the parades and like all of the trappings of Christmas that start even now. It used to be that at least Halloween got like a couple days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now it's it's like Christmas all the time. But I think there is something to that where it's like it becomes part of your culture regardless of if it's something that is part mm-hmm. of your religion or your beliefs side note i i want to like i want to come watch white christmas with you when the snow falls it found, sounds like your traditions are so fun i'm like i want to watch i want to make cookies and listen to you recite it's a wonderful life this is brilliant <laughs> you say that now but i live in london and i took one of my friends to the prince charles cinema where they play it's a wonderful life every year um, on original 35 millimeter, which is just so good. It's, it looks so good. It sounds so good. Oh, it's amazing. But one of my very close friends had never seen the film before, and he's been listening to me yell about It's a Wonderful Life for like <laughs> three years in my research. So I took him to see it, and it took everything within me to not talk during it and be like, oh, but this scene, because <laughs> I was actually watching it in public. I think you're a delight. I think it would be delightful. So I don't know if anybody's in London listening and they <laughs> maybe you should do a set up a screening, a, a, a date with Vaughn. <laughs> yeah, we'll rent it out one night. Yeah, you should do a talk back afterwards. Yeah. Shout out to Prince Charles. You need to be there for a talk, do a talk back. I think that'd be great. That would be great, actually. Mm-hmm. You should, yeah, that, we'll promote you. Just putting that in your ear. You. you need to like message the <laughs> cinema and get it out and, there. And I think people would, people would love that. Oh, They'd I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. What would you like to see 
change or want to see more of in the kind of future Christmas films that will exist because they'll continue to be made. (laughs) Yes, they definitely will be. One would be more representation across holidays. So I do think that we need more Hanukkah films and more, not even just in, in winter holidays, it could be any holiday, but we do absolutely need more representation across religions and across kind of secular traditions as well. They don't have to be about a religion, just traditions that we collectively have or different groups collectively have as part of the American identity, because it is multicultural and multifaceted and we need more of that on screen. And then with Christmas directly, we're always going to have Christmas romances that is such a cornerstone of the genre. And I would really love more LGBTQ relationships or interracial relationships because those are so, so underrepresented in Christmas media. One really wonderful one is from Netflix, I think last year, Single All the Way. It's such a good film. I really, really love that one about two gay men who are best friends and the family want them to be together. And by the end of the film, they decide they are. And it's just a happy little Christmas film. It's really, really wonderful. Um, I would love more of that. Where can our listeners engage with you and all of this amazing information that you have in your brain? <laughs> you mentioned a book. Like, tell us more. What, what can, how can people find you? So I co-host two podcasts right now and a third starting next week. Wow. The first is Impressions of America about post-war through today kind of culture and media and politics and whatever we kind of feel like um, about American history. The second is called Joy of Star Wars, which is about American history and themes uh, that we can kind of trace through American history, like corruption or justice or indoctrination and matching those to themes in Star Wars, because I really love Star Wars. Both of those are on Twitter at USA Impressions or at Joy of Star Wars. The third one is Hollywood in Focus, which launched in November. And that'll be about kind of micro and macro histories of Hollywood and the different eras that Hollywood went through, the histories of political change and cultural change through that, and then also some film reviews from each of those eras. I am also personally on Twitter at Joy, and I, I have a few articles coming out, primarily about the Paramount Accords, but also some other kind of public scholarship things that I'll be linking on my, my Twitter. So there will be things to read, things to listen to, and eventually, when I finish my PhD, after making three podcasts, I'll have a book one day. <laughs> so Amazing. Yes. Vaughn, I just want to say thank you so much for you know chatting to us about Christmas films, holiday films, so much about Hollywood. Like we had a whole history lesson. This is great. And it's fantastic. And I think understanding like the impact at one point, there were these films that were dealing with things like mental health. It's a Wonderful Life, I think, really deals with that. It's dealing with depression. Um And it's dealing with a lot of like the thoughts you have of like, what is my place in the world? And, you know, then how it shifted because, you know, people became so fearful. And I think now as we continue to try to strive to make things more open and and talk about our experiences, you know, the reason why we do this podcast, I just think it harkens back to the reasons why we make and consume films is to like tell these stories and and get these out there in the world and, and do it in a way that is very reflective of our society. So I think this really touched on a lot of those points. So just thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. And like, really, I can't wait to consume your Hollywood and focus podcast. Cause I want to learn all this history. It's so cool. I love it. <laughs> thank you. 
Um, and thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation and I am always up to talk Christmas films. So find me on Twitter and we can talk. So uh, Christmas music is playing on rotation in my house right now. And I am loving it just as much as I loved chatting with Vaughn. Right now, my husband's watching all the Rankin and Bass animations because it's the stuff he watched in his childhood. I realized there was a, a little drummer boy, which I did not ever watch. And then we saw it and it's kind of scary. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, I was like, whoa, there's someone who traps the little drummer boy and makes him drum and Ooh. sells off his camel friend. And I was very sad. His lamb gets run over by the chariot of a Roman warrior. I mean, it was very, wow. It's very wild. Hmm. It doesn't sound kid friendly at all, but no, not really. But and it's a different time. Mm-hmm. What's really exciting for me right now is that as someone who doesn't consume dairy, they have all the special flavors of like coffee, of milk and coffee creamers that I can have. So right now I have like a pumpkin y, spicy flavor. There's peppermint mocha. There's eggnog, or the, sorry, we call it holiday nog. That's what it's called because there's no <laughs> egg in it because it's vegan. So I actually get those flavors. But I only get those flavors for like a window of like three weeks. I'm not a huge eggnog drinker. So I uh, get my myself some chocolate milk and use that. Back in the day when I was drinking, I would have Bailey's, but I sh- it would be nice to find a Bailey's alternative. That's I guess I could just find Irish cream somewhere. I did find that they actually have, not that this, I mean, we both don't drink, but they have Bailey's now with almond milk. Oh. They have like an almond milk, non-dairy Bailey's. A non-dairy. Well, for all those non-dairy folks out there. After chatting with Vaughn, which I think is great that her last name is Joy, because tis the season. Um, I was like really interested in all of this historical stuff about Hollywood. Yeah. And I think I want to go like go take some film classes, like... <laughs> And, and like the history of film, because I could, yeah, I could talk to her for days and days and days. So I'm so glad she's out there doing doing this research. My friend is really fascinated with pre-code Hollywood. And so he often is like talking about the great women creators that came before the Hays Code came. And there was amazing women writers and directors and just going out there and doing things and talking about, you know, really important subjects. And then when the, when the Hays Code came in, it all disappeared and um, yeah, it's just a really interesting to see that. And, you know, the fear of what happens when we limit what we're able to talk about and like the impact that has. And I think as we kind of talk through this the idea of like having that representation of mental health, having characters, you know, actually talk around a time of Christmas, talk about depression. Like yeah. if we look at It's a Wonderful Life, talk about the fact that he thought if I died my everyone's life would be better um and then really having a moment of realizing that he is important to people and people are important to him i know i've experienced a lot of i like to call it melancholy around the holidays and i think it happens more often to people than maybe we talk about about that sadness that you feel when it's you know it's supposed to be the happiest time of year and everybody's getting together and having a great time but for me i find my anxiety gets really high and i get really stressed and I'm at a stage now in life where I've seen the the patterns and I'm kind of, I know what to prepare for and it's, it's okay. It's just part of what my holidays sometimes are. Not all the time, but sometimes, and that's okay. 
if we need to kind of have those conversations of like, yeah, maybe your expectation, the expectations you have, or like this year, it's been this really strange year of seeing a lot of people going out to things and doing a lot of things. We're going to Boston in a week and we're going to be taking my father-in-law to a lot of appointments and I can't get sick because if I get sick, I can't, I'm the driver and then I can't be in the car with him because I don't want Mm. him to get sick. So Mm -hmm. um, we have to be really, really careful. Like my house right now is like, we were sick for a week, got better for a week and got sick again. And it's just like the kids are in school. There's no masks. Like there's way more stuff going on. And I, you know, I want to participate in things and I also don't like being sick. So it sucks. Yeah. It's been an interesting year as things start to shift into this place of more normalcy for some people and for others, like just being very careful and, um, you know, to protect, you know, our own health, but also the health of the people that we love and, what that looks like. So, you know, and, and with that comes like that feeling of like, oh, I'm not really like, you want to be, it's funny because Christmas becomes this thing of like, I want to belong to these things. I want to celebrate with people, but sometimes it's just overwhelming and I don't want to mm-hmm. necessarily be in those spaces, but I want to be invited and I want to be accepted. And it brings all this weird stuff, you know? Totally. And that's kind of that sort of FOMO, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. is what I've experienced in many years, like non-COVID years where I wanted to make sure everyone felt included or that I was included in all the things, but I'm only one human. I can only go to so many events and then I have to incorporate like my own, you know, my partner and my kid. And like, it's just, you can't do everything. And then, and at times in the past, I'd be like, but I need to be everywhere and do everything. If I'm invited, I must go. And so, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough to navigate those feelings. Yeah, exactly. So this episode wraps up season one of Brains. And I have to say, I know it's wild. It's really been life changing. And it's kind of like, I feel like, oh, that's so silly to say, but like, it's made me investigate my own mental health. And it, Mm -hmm. you know, it led me to getting my diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. And I've been working through that. I had a great session yesterday with my therapist and they were like, you've been incorporating this program into your life and look at the changes you've already made. And I'm like, yeah, like it's feeling good. And I don't think I would have had that push to do those things if I wasn't learning more about other people's experiences with their mental health and how maybe getting a diagnosis or going to the right therapist made a difference in their lives. And so a big thank you to all the guests and experts that have come on our podcast who have like enlightened me and helped me make my mental health a big priority in my life this year. So thanks. Thanks everybody. Yeah. And I just feel so grateful that people you know, took a chance on us to come, you know, we're like, Hey, we have this idea. Do you want to talk to us? Yeah. And people said, yes. Yeah. And to us, I think that's, it just makes you, as we said, like the feeling of belonging, but just, Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, Oh, there's all these people who want to have these conversations and we want to have a platform for this, the conversation of like, how can we create, you know, better television, better films, Mm -hmm how do we, how do we start to have more conversations around these subjects that are, that do account for those nuances that do account for those real lived experiences. And I'm just grateful that they're willing to jump on board and, and talk about that stuff with us. So it's been remarkable. It's, this is our 21st episode, which is fantastic. We will be back in the new year with even more episodes. So we hope that anyone who's listening, please do let us know 
what topics you would like to hear about? Um, what other things can we we bring to the world? And like we've had people reach out to us who have been guests mm-hmm. uh, who said, like, I have a story and they really did. And it was amazing. And we're so grateful for that. So we just would love um, yeah, to continue to bring in things that the audi- our audiences want to hear about. So um, just thank you again for those who have, you know, provided us with questions, who have reached out and told us like who they'd like to hear from. And uh, it's just, I'm really grateful for that type of interaction and for all of you listeners for listening to us every week um, and, you know, learning something and uh, <laughs> hopefully, or just really enjoying it. And I mean, especially big shout out to our Auntie Sue. Auntie Sue, yeah! Listens to every episode. <laughs> And she is the most wonderful woman. She's yes. always asking questions, rethinking and reframing the way that she sees the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very inspired by her. <sighs> Auntie Sue, you're making us cry because <laughs> we love you so much. And I know you're going to hear this because you listen to every episode. <laughs> you are a person who embodies what it means to um, truly want to be a good human. And we're so lucky to have you as our family. And to have you love us and support us, know that you're the best. <laughs> so thank you. I guess this is where we say goodbye. Uh, this is the last time we'll be talking to you in 2022. What? You'll hear from us again in the year 2023. See you in the future. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor. Mixed and mastered by Tony Bow. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Motion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also reach us on TikTok, where we put up little clips of the show. <laughs> um, you can go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time. I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Happy holidays to you. (laughs) Okay. Until we meet again. again. (laughs) Isn't it happy trails? I think it's happy trails. It is happy trails. (laughs) (laughs)